Good morning. For those of you that might be here for the first time, it's really, really nice to have you with us this morning. My, my name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at, at Four Oaks. And we recognize that there are a number of fine churches in the Tallahassee area, and we're very honored that you, that you chose to be with us this morning and that we get to share this morning together. We get to share this service in this room because, as Paul said, we were out there during the first service, uh, freshly reminded that we don't need electricity to experience power and the power of God's Word and the power of fellowship together. And so we get to experience that here as well. You know, put up your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For our guests, we are in a series that is titled, Weak is Strong. It is a series from 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves embedded in this book as we're in the 8th chapter, moving into the ninth chapter. And in being embedded, we're coming face to face with what are some really revolutionary ideas about what it means to be triumphant as a Christian. You know, I was just thinking this past week about, about this book and, and how it couldn't be more surprising, it couldn't be more countercultural, it couldn't be more even un-American, because if you were raised in this country, uh, you were probably oriented to the idea that, that triumphant tales are really what life is all about, that success is defined by you know, dominance, we love dominant sports teams, we love business tycoons, we love our history of military conquests and rags to riches stories and things like that. But here in Second Corinthians, you know, we come face to face with a Savior who is weak, a Savior who died in weakness, who calls, up to pick, calls us to pick up our cross in weakness, who then tells us to boast in weakness. And it's there in weakness that we're, we're learning that we experience the amazing grace of God, that weakness is the intersection where grace meets human beings. And so we arrive at a point of the story where Paul, in weakness, has to take up an offering among the Corinthians. And I want to say right off that this is not like a sexy piece of scripture um, there's a lot of other more exciting parts than talking about an offering. And if you're a guest here um, and you're thinking, I knew they'd talk about money. You know, you go to church, they're always talking about money. Um, it is true that we unapologetically talk about money because Scripture unapologetically talks about money. But more importantly, we teach expositionally here at Four Oaks, which means that we go through books of the Bible and we go through the sections of those books and we teach what is in those sections. And so this morning, we have arrived at a section that is about giving. So the title of this morning's message is Ground Rules for Giving. Ground Rules for Giving. And we're in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 8, verse 16, and read through chapter 9, verse 5. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. 
With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, when I hear that word willing gift, I think of you and the willing gift that you gave of yourself to be sacrificed for our sins, to rise on the third day, to ascend to heaven, and to send your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that now resides within us, the Holy Spirit that now enables us and positions us to be able to receive your word. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In August of 1866, the Sword and the Trowel, now Sword and the Trowel was a publication of of Metropolitan Tabernacle. Metropolitan Tabernacle was the church of the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. The Sword and the Trowel published an article written by Charles Spurgeon on the epidemic of orphans that was taking place in London. And Charles Spurgeon was making the case that local churches need to earn this or or own this problem in a unique way. Several days later, a member of Metropolitan Tabernacle, one Mrs. Hilliard, felt led by the Spirit to donate 20,000 pounds. Now, I googled 20,000 pounds just to get an idea of what the conversion was, and it's it's, it's millions and millions of pounds, which is even more dollars. So we're talking about a lot of money here. 
Now, for Spurgeon, receiving this check was like, was like birthday, Christmas, anniversary, just all wrapped into one because this meant that his dream was going to come true. This meant that this burden that he carried each and every day for these orphans was finally going to have an outlet. They're finally going to receive the care that he had been praying for. But what's so fascinating about this story is how he went about collecting that money. His biographer, Lewis Drummond, reports as follows, quote, So he and William Higgs made an appointment and called upon Mrs. Hilliard at her modest home. They honestly feared that there had been some mistake. They began the interview by saying that they had called about the 200 pounds she had mentioned in her letter. Did I write 200, exclaimed the lady? I meant 20,000. Oh, yes, said Mr. Spurgeon. You did put down 20,000. But I thought perhaps there was a knot or two too many. So a knot in the Queen's English is a, is a zero. Zero or two too many. No, she meant 20,000, not 200. Spurgeon always a man of integrity, asked first whether some relative should receive the money. Mrs. Hilliard settled that point. No relative stood in line for the legacy. Spurgeon then suggested that perhaps the money should be sent to George Mueller at Bristol. But nothing would satisfy her but that Mr. Spurgeon should inaugurate the work. And this is how Drummond ends. Of course, This found a ready reception in his own heart, and that settled the matter then and there. Now, I want you to think about something for a second. I want you to think about this. This money comes in. It's an answer to prayer. This money is is like a supernatural gift that has arrived at Spurgeon's doorstep after he's been praying and praying for it. And the whole thing, just in the way it develops and who it comes from and how spontaneous it is, it just seems to drip with the generosity of God. But still Spurgeon wanted to ensure that there was no prior claim upon the money, that it was not an unwise sacrifice, that that he and Metropolitan Tabernacle were indeed the most worthy recipients of the money. And what we begin to see is that for Spurgeon, caring for the giver was even more important than the gift which said a lot about him. And I want to suggest that it also illustrates one of the primary points that comes from this passage today, which is that the worth of a leader is seen in the way he collects money. The worth of a leader is seen in the way he collects money. Now hold that out to the side for a second, and let's plug back into the text, because here... In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we find Paul, the leader, collecting money. Corinthians have committed to give some money to the poor, poor of Jerusalem, and they are initially very excited, very enthusiastic. They have pledged this money willingly, but now it's a year later. And their zeal has been somewhat quenched by the circumstances of their life. And you can relate to that. I can relate to that as well. But that wasn't the only problem. Not not only did they have that going on where their circumstances, their financial circumstances have changed, but they've got the guy who's taken up the offering who has been under attack, which has been known to have a chilling effect on donations, isn't it? 
Because this is a guy whose enemies were accusing him of financial abuse. They said of him that he doesn't accept income because he's got other ways to kind of fleece the flock. You know, just imagine when this facility was built, if, or just imagine if we're trying to launch another campus, and at the same time, the Tallahassee Democrat is weekly publishing articles about the lack of integrity of the leadership of Four Oaks, or, or some people are blogging and contacting the people of Four Oaks, or members of Four Oaks are becoming more and more suspicious about the leadership. Just imagine that situation, and you get a sense of what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. It's like, could there be a worse time to talk about money? This story almost has an audacious quality to it as Paul was still asking for the ask. He's still asking for the cash. And it's right here that we, you know, that we discover another quality of Paul by the Spirit of God as we observe the way that he handles this collection Because his approach is going to illustrate again that the worth of a leader is seen in the way he collects money. So what do we learn here about giving and good leadership? What are the lessons that come forward? Well, first is that giving needs administration. Giving needs administration. Now, it's interesting, you know, here we have the apostle talking to us, the guy who's been to the third heaven, the guy that writes scripture, and yet to Paul, administration mattered. How things were organized seemed to be very important to him. I mean, the section we just read was 14 verses, 14 verses of the word of God that are all dedicated to the specifics of how to handle a collection. In fact, Paul goes on to say that I'm going to arrange not for just one, not for just two, but for three men to carry this offering to Jerusalem. And he's not just kind of pulling anybody out. Hey, maybe you'll work. Oh, no, no, you come over here. I don't know your name, but we'll work with you. No, there are like three sterling men. These are not the three amigos. These are not the three stooges. These are like three of the best that Paul has. Only one of them were given their name. There's Titus. He comes to us at verse 16, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. Look down to verse 23. As for Titus, he's my partner. He's my fellow worker for your benefit. So Titus is the guy that was chosen to carry the severe letter to the Corinthians on behalf of Paul. That's how important he was to Paul. That's how trusted he was for Paul. Paul's so worried about him. Remember in chapter 2, he, Paul had a door open in Troas, but he left Troas because he was concerned about Titus. Where's Titus? What's the news from the Corinthians? So Titus is simply the best that Paul has. And since this job needed to be well organized and well executed, Paul sends his best. But Titus is not the only one. Then there's this other dude. There's this mysterious ironic man of verse 18 and 19. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching. The brother who is famous, who has no name. This famous, famous guy who is nameless. Paul never names him. He's like, you know, he's like Batman. Really famous. Nobody knows who he is. Really, everybody knows his fame, but nobody knows his name. So I like to think this might have been like a 
you know, like a senior moment for Paul, you know. You know, he's famous among the Corinthians. You know who I'm talking about. You know, uh, you know the famous one, the guy, it'll come to me later. But you know what I'm talking about. So we have Titus. We have famous dude. And then we got the brother of verse 22. And with them are we are sending our brother whom we are... Ha- we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but he is now even more earnest. So we've got earnest going with them as well, or the importance of seeking earnest or being earnest or whatever. We've got the famous brother, we've got earnest, and they're all come together. And why are they going? Because the Corinthian collection needs to be reorganized. The Corinthian collection needs to be completed. And so Paul sends his finest to administrate this matter. Now, why I want to pull this out and hold this up for you is that so often as Christians, we tend to overlook the connection between mission and good organization, between the gospel and the effective delivery, the means by which the gospel gets out. I brought a quote with me this morning by Robert Marie McShane. It's kind of a famous quote. I wonder if you've heard it. He says, God gave me a message to deliver, and a horse to ride. Alas, I have killed the horse, and now I cannot deliver the message. And I love this quote because it illustrates the connection between the message and the delivery system. In other words, it's not enough to have a message. We need a delivery system to get the message across. See, Christians can tend to think simply about the message. We don't tend to think about the horse that needs to carry the message. We don't tend to think about the delivery system. We tend to assume at times that organization just happens, that when we have a first service where the power goes out and we need to get all the chairs out there into the lobby, that the Spirit of God just does it. And He just sets them up. And then He sets up our website, and then he sends out emails on our behalf. And these kind of things, because we're spiritual people, and we don't like to think about the earthly organizational side of things, we just tend to think that the Spirit does that kind of stuff. And it almost can feel profane to think about that, to think about the horse. We don't like to think about the horse. But Paul understood McShane's point. You kill the horse... It slows the message. And if we want to have a good collection, people must know about the horse. Paul tends to the horse. He tends to the delivery system. There must be good administration. You know, when I was a new believer, I heard a message. um, It's by a guy named Jim Detmer. And the message was called Community Cause Incorporation. And the point that he was making was that the church... To understand the church, you have to understand the church through three different metaphors. The church is a community, the church is a cause, and the church is a corporation. So the church is a community. In other words, it's a family. We share our life together. We love one another. It's a community. The church is also a cause. We have a mission. We make sacrifices. We are an army. We are a cause. The church is also a corporation. We are an organization. We have principles. We have policies. And not all of those same metaphors have the same significance to the church and to the message, 
but they are, are all essential to the church because if you ignore one of them, then the other two suffer. So let's say you want to eliminate community, so you just become a cause and a corporation. Well, you eliminate community and the church becomes cold. It becomes lifeless. It becomes, you know, singularly minded. It becomes unloving. It's, it basically becomes a gathering with no soul. Well, you keep community and you say, well, let's just get rid of the cause. You eliminate the cause. Well, the church turns inward. The church lacks momentum. The koinonia that we enjoy, remember the Greek word for a shared life and for community is koinonia. The koinonia begins to become corrupted. Koinonia becomes koinonitis. We become infected and the church doesn't move on. It's a people without a name. So we can't eliminate the community. We can't eliminate the cause. What about if we eliminate the corporation? What about if we kill the horse? Well, see, the corporation affects the delivery of the mission and the delivery of care. And if you eliminate and you feel like the, we don't even need that part of it, we're beyond that part of it, the Spirit's too powerful for that part of it, then you effectively eliminate and frustrate Christians because we have a vision that has no means to execute the vision. Let me just give you an illustration, then we'll move on to the next point. But I really want to press home this point so that we can appropriately value and thank God, not just for administration, but so that when you're walking around this church on Sunday mornings and you're seeing people that are giving themselves to the organization, or you're out doing evangelism, or you're, or you're talking to Joe on the phone who's organizing something, or there's something going on, that we can all have a pr- proper appreciation that the Spirit of God has raised those people up, and they're doing an important thing in helping the mission go forward. So just imagine for a second, you know, there's a single mom in the church who basically lives, you know, paycheck to paycheck, and there's an economic downturn, and she loses her job. She calls the office immediately, and she says, you know what, I've lost my job, and I'm very frightened, and I I don't know what to do, but there's nobody to pick up the phone, so she leaves, an office on the, she leaves a message on the office phone machine. But there's no, you know, there's no basic system to retrieve the messages off the phone, and, and, uh, and so she never gets a call back. So she calls a couple of days later, and she leaves another message, and you know, she's beginning to get the impression that, what, what's going on here? And so she grabs a pastor on Sunday morning and says, listen, I... I've got a serious need, and I'm very frightened. I'm very afraid. I don't know what to do with this. And the pastor says, oh, let me pray for you, and, and we want to help you. We want to come alongside of you. But, but there's really no deacon that he points her to, or there's no system to cut a check for a, for a single mom in that situation. There's no compassion that is organized within the church. My point to you is that that woman doesn't ultimately arrive at the place where she's saying, boy, are they administratively weak. Oh my goodness, do they need to get organized over there at Four Oaks? No. You know what she says? She says, they don't care about me. The breakdown of the organization, the breakdown of the corporate side ultimately affects the delivery of the compassion And the delivery of the compassion makes a statement, not about organization, but it makes a statement about care. See, Paul understood this. That's why the Apostle Paul is spending time administrating a collection. Because the worth of a leader is seen in the way that he collects. Something as simple as money. 
money. Okay, so we're talking about giving and that giving needs administration. My second point is that giving needs to be honorable. Giving needs to be honorable. Look at verse 20. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable. Let's just pull out a couple things from this passage for a second. Paul says this is a generous gift. That that word there in the Greek, that's like a powerful, big word. Generous there, it means lavish. It means abundant. So we're talking about a huge chunk of change. This is serious cash they're dealing with. And how should this cash be handled, he says in verse 20? Well, we, we take this course, he says, so that no one should be blamed. And when he uses that word, he's not talking about guilt. He's talking about proceeding in a way that they are above accusation. He wants to do this in a way that they're not accused of anything. And then he drops this idea in verse 21, which I just want to get you thinking about and let it bounce around in your mind a little bit. Because he says, we aim, verse 21, at what is honorable, not only in God's sight, but in the sight of man. You know, it's interesting that there are times in Scripture where we are called as Christians to take a stand without, without caring about what anybody thinks. That there's truth that we stand on, that there are places where we're supposed to lead, that we're supposed to just disregard how we're perceived by other people. In fact, there's even a sin. It's something called man-pleasing. It's fear of man, Proverbs 29. Fear of man proves to be a snare. Fear of man is this excessive concern with how we're perceived by other people. Or maybe the fear of being rejected, living my life more concerned with how you perceive me or whether you accept me than whether God accepts me. It's fear of man. And yet Paul seems to be saying here that when it comes to giving, it's not just about being honorable in the sight of God. That that's an important start, but there's this whole other area where other people do come into play and other people do have to be considered and and the honor of people is important as well. And so when we begin to see what this really meant for Paul, there are, what did it mean for Paul to be honorable? There are two different things that seem to begin to emerge as to how he conducted this that spell out what it meant for Paul to be honorable before God and before man. The two things are transparency and accountability. Transparency and accountability. Now when I say transparency, I mean, I mean disclosure sufficient to achieve confidence in the sight of men and women. Let me say that again. Disclosure sufficient to achieve confidence in the sight of men and women. So what Paul does is Paul carefully defines the process for their giving. He takes great pains to to make sure they know that he he is exempted from handling the money at all himself. He allows the churches to appoint the famous brother. He doesn't handle it. Paul's not behind the scenes pulling the strings. He's not controlling people. He's not saying, I'm going to make it appear, I'm going to make it appear like the books are open. But in reality, I'm behind the curtain pulling all the strings. 
fact, the, the ultimate effect, he says, and the ultimate goal in chapter 9, verse 5, is that he wants the gift to be, quote, a willing gift, not an exaction. In other words, I'm not, I don't want to manipulate this to exact it out of you. I don't want this to become some kind of tax that you have to pay. So he wants the church to be armed with accurate information, and then he wants the church to engage God on what to do with the information that he has provided. And I think that's a great way to lead. And I say that because that's one of the ways that not only do we see Paul leading, but that's one of the ways that I've seen the elders of this church lead. And that's one of the ways I've seen the people of this church respond. See, in the elders' attempt to be transparent, we, we publish the budget, we publish the giving, we keep you updated through these weekly emails, the, the e-news. And if you've been around for more than 16 or 17 months, you know that about 16 months ago, that giving dropped. The giving of the church dropped. And the elders came to the church, and Pastor Paul stood up and shared very honestly that, hey, you know, the giving has dropped and, you know, ran us all through the numbers. And then asked you, you know, didn't squeeze you, didn't manipulate you, but just asked you to engage God sent you away to God. And and the Spirit of God moved through your generosity, and we, as a result of that, saw this dramatic increase in giving. By the way, thank you, thank you, on behalf of the pastors and elders, thank you for your response to God. It It was so encouraging to us at what was a discouraging time to see you respond in faith. But what I want to point out to you for the purposes of this message is that that began with the elders' transparency to you, which then sent you to God, and you engaged God, which then stirred your generosity. And we are very grateful to God. So my first point is when Paul's talking about being honorable before God and honorable in the sight of men, he's talking first about transparency. But then there's also this second feature which is accountability, accountability. When I say accountability, I mean controls that are sufficient to uphold the law and stand above reproach. Controls that are sufficient to to uphold the law and stand above reproach. Now, we didn't read this, but, but this offering actually begins in 1 Corinthians, not in 2 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians in the last chapter, chapter 16, verse 2, Paul actually insisted that the offering take place before he even arrived. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, it says literally in 16.2, he says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I don't want there to be any collecting. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to be in the same city when it happens. Paul is so tenacious about the integrity of the money that he's ensuring that he's nowhere even in the area when the money starts to get collected. I saw a story online this week of a pastor who was arrested for stealing money from the offering. It's very sad. But they, 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 they put a, a camera up in the area where the money is, is counted on Sunday morning. And there's the pastor. He's counting the money, and then he's slipping some in his pocket, counting the money, slipping some in his pocket, and turns out that he appointed the counters that were going to count the money. My point being, Paul's saying, I would never allow that. I would never be in the same room as the money. That's what Paul's saying. 
I want a distance between me and the money. And it didn't stop there. Because Paul then instructed the churches to appoint their own representatives to transport it. Again, we didn't read this this morning, but chapter 16, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So you guys appoint the people, let the church appoint them, let the church accredit them, and then they can carry it to Jerusalem. And then Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians, the section we read this morning, he adds the additional accountability. He sends Titus, he sends Mr. Famous, and he sends the importance of being earnest, and he sends them. He doesn't insert himself, which he could. I mean, keep in mind that if anybody had a claim to having integrity, it would be the guy who's been to the third heaven. If anybody could have, said, could have played the card and said, hey, no, I can handle this, it would have been the guy who had the personal conversation with Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus or on the road to whatever. Senior moment. It would have been him, but he never plays that card because he realizes that it's, it's important, not only in the sight of God, but in the sight of men to be honorable. And so... He, he has a whole different set of goals than simply exercising his prerogatives as a leader. And, and even in that, though, he's not hesitant about taking up an offering. He's not hesitant about stirring faith to give toward an offering. He just doesn't want to handle the cash. Listen, you're not being arrogant at all when you look for accountability in organizations that you want to give to. You're being biblical, by the way. The church is not being uptight when it builds protections into how it handles the money, how it organizes itself. It's being biblical. That's one of the reasons why here at Four Oaks, the members vote on the budget. There is an external audit every year that the lay elders approve the vocational elders, which means the pastors, they approve their salaries. No pastors are permitted to vote on his salary or any of the other pastors' salaries. See, the point that I'm making is that Paul instituted accountability because he wanted no doubt about his integrity. And that's what we want as well. That's the same reason we do it, because we realize that the worth of not simply a leader, but the worth of the eldership is seen in the way they handle money, is seen in the way they collect money. And a great way to look at that is where's the transparency, where's the accountability? So it's giving needs to be honorable. And then lastly, giving needs readiness. Giving needs readiness. Paul says in chapter 9, verse 1, I know you are ready, but then he says this very curious thing in verse 3 where he says, so that you may get ready. And then in verse 5, he, he says, your readiness will stir your willingness to give. So there's a sense where when Paul sees the Corinthians and he sees into their hearts, he says, you are ready, you've been ready, but you need to get ready. Because the Corinthians had already promised to give. That's evident from verse 5. But they are reluctant to give. It's not like we can't understand it. We can't plug into this. I mean, their circumstances have changed. Have you had that happen? Is your circumstances the same this year as they were last year? Maybe it's not. Maybe they're worse for you. Well, that's the way it was for the Corinthians. And by the way, again, Paul was under attack. And so, like... So many of us, the Corinthians, have this situation where they're committed to give, but they're shaken a bit. They're a little frightened. 
Their spirit is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. They're desirous, but you know, they're weary. It's been, it's been a while. And so Paul realizes that he has to prepare them. He realizes that there is work to do as a leader to prepare the people to give. And I mean, when we begin to see what he does, I want you to prepare right now to be surprised. Because what Paul begins to do is utterly, like, amazing. Because here he has these people, the Corinthians. The Corinthians. The Corinthians are the weakest church in the entire New Testament. And it's not like, it's not like they're, they're, they and another church are close together, you know, competing for which one is the weakest. There's the Corinthians, and then everybody else are way over here. The Corinthians are the ones where the church struggle with sexual immorality, where the church just loved to get drunk at times, where, where, where the church had these abuses of the gifts and they chose the wrong leaders. And what's worse is that they're even sketchy about Paul. They're saying, yeah, we don't know about this guy. You know, we, we're a little uncertain about his leadership. And these are the people that Paul has to inspire. These people that don't get it, but seem to be committed to going into a certain direction. These people that don't get it, but they're being called by God to make a contribution. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Any Corinthians in your life? You know, people who are with you, they're with you, so they say, but they have these certain suspicions about you. They're desirous, but they're, you know, reluctant, not sure, hard to manage, hard to move forward, don't always do everything they say. You know, maybe it's an employee or a or a co-worker for you, or you're here as a parent, you're saying, that's my kid. I see that in my kid. Maybe this is the person that you're, you're witnessing to. They, they kind of have these Corinthian tendencies, and you're asking the question that really Paul is answering here. How do you ready them to move forward? How do you ready them to make a contribution? And this is where what Paul does, I mean, this is mind-boggling. What Paul does is Paul assumes the best about the Corinthians. In fact, so much so that he's boasting to the Macedonians about what he assumes about the Corinthians. Did, did, you, did you catch that one line where he says, for I know, verse 2, I know your readiness. I know your readiness, Corinthians. And then he says, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. I mean, this is the Corinthians. They're failures. They're tolerating the wrong leaders. They're listening to the intruders. They have all of these, all these immature traits and tendencies and pensions and inclinations and proclivities and all of these problems. And yet when Paul looks at them, he doesn't see that first. It's not that the past and all of their mistakes comes, comes washing over him so that the first thing he thinks about is all of the areas where they get it wrong. There's something about faith that when faith works in the life of a believer who's working with other believers or who's parenting other believers, that faith is able to see the future and bring the future forward so that the person that we're working with hears more about the future than they do about the present, hears more about the future than they do about the past. See, part of what bitterness does, part of what fear does, part of what resentment does is that it labels people with their worst moment. 
Anytime you find yourself reaching into somebody's past, pulling forward their worst moment and sticking it on them like it's a label or tagging them with that, you're basically operating out of fear, resentment, bitterness. There's something going on that isn't in sync with the Spirit of God. Because faith is always at work pulling together a future where God is at work in a powerful way and pulling it forward and putting it up for the other person, which is what Paul can do with, of all people, the Corinthians. And sometimes we just use that future, um, we just use that past to punish people, to retaliate for the way their behavior affects us, to to just want to make sure they know that we don't forget. And so we just keep that label out there. We just kind of punish them with that label. We just corral them with that. And we don't realize how much unbelief is wrapped up with that. I mean, if Paul, the apostle, Mr. Third Heaven himself, can sit with the Corinthians, Mr. and Mrs. Lie Down with the Devil themselves, and speak to them about a future or even a present where what he sees, when he looks at them, is not like they're just bailing out and they're falling away and they're not wanting to follow God, but you're ready. In fact, you're so ready. I was over with, I was with the Macedonians the other day. You know what I was talking about? No, what? I was talking about you. I was talking about you and your generosity, Corinthians. I was talking about you. I've got a buddy who's a pastor, and uh, I once asked him how he came to Christ. And he was telling me about how when he was a he, he was a teenager, you know, they were just tumultuous years for him. And he was saying, I did so many sinful, stupid, wrong things. And I said, Really? How did your parents respond to that? He said, Well, let me tell you something. He said, My parents would consistently would consistently speak to me even when I was completely at fault, about the strengths they saw in me. And even when I was sinning, they would somehow pull together a future that they saw and they would put up in front of me. He said, in fact, sometimes I'd be walking and, say, and, and my mom would say, there goes Dave, the man of God. And he'd be like, what? I'm going out to get jacked up tonight. And there goes Dave, the man. And he said, but I didn't know who I was and I didn't know where I was going. And in the vacuum of that question, when everything else seemed unresolved, I began to say, well, at least they know who I am and where I'm going. And he said, eventually, the, the God just gave me the faith to begin to say, okay, I don't know, but they seem to know, so I'm just going to begin thinking about myself that way. And eventually, I just began to aspire for what they saw in me and began to move in that direction, and then, and then the Spirit began to connect what they said with the Word of God and with God, and then it all came together. And I'm thinking, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Because his parents would often speak of his strengths they saw, who he was becoming in Christ, and soon he started believing it. See, they didn't tag him with his worst moments. You know what I mean by that? You have people that are like that. You have leaders that are like that, or parents that are like that, where your worst moment becomes your biggest label. You know, your worst moment becomes what they see, what they talk about. And what we have to deal with is this reality that, that when we're struggling with unbelief, that unbelief is fundamentally sin-centered. 
that unbelief is weakness-centered. So we know any time that that's where we're gravitating towards or that's the only way we're seeing somebody else, that there's something at work in our own heart. So what happens when faith comes into the scene is faith can take our little Corinthians and get them ready for the next step. In fact, faith can basically say to Corinthians who are having all kinds of problems, oh, you know what? you got a big contribution to make. God is at work in you, and you're going to make a big contribution. Now, for Paul, he's talking about money, but let's just broaden it out to any number of things. You have an enormous contribution you're going to make in the future, and you're ready to do it. I'm getting you ready to do it. You know, there's a sense where the worth of the leader is seen by how he speaks to people or how she speaks to people in those kinds of moments. Can we see them making a big contribution? Or is there something about the person you're working with where they just seem to be beyond a big contribution? Maybe that says more about you than it does about them. Maybe that says something about where you need to be just honestly repenting before the Lord for where you've allowed your heart to get and how you're not believing that God is big enough to break into the life of a Corinthian. Unbelief is weakness-centered. We'd rather talk about where the Corinthians once were than the big contribution they could be making right now. And these Corinthians, they've made a promise. And there's a sense where Paul knows that the best way to, to work with them is to assume that they will fulfill the promise even though they're Corinthians is to assume their readiness, not their reluctance, to assume their readiness. Think about that for yourself. Would the people around you, would your spouse, would your kids, your coworkers, you know, your, your mates, your network, your, your friends, would, would they say that you're more aware of their strengths or their weaknesses? Would they say that you're more aware of their sins or of what God is doing in their life, of their readiness or their reluctance, where you see the past flaws or you see the future activity and the future grace that they're going to walk in. See, this is how Paul led. And by the way, this is what delivered Charles Spurgeon to the home of Mrs. Hilliard as well because he wanted to ensure that the sacrifice that she made was simply a sacrifice and not a slaughter to her because he was concerned about her future. Because the worth of a leader is seen in the way that he or she collects money. And what, and what he sees or she sees when they are calling others to make a big contribution. And that's what Paul did. And may God help us do it as well. Let's pray.